0: My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard transmissions podcast with your host, Jason Whitberry.
1: Welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions, I'm Jason P. Woodbury and once a week I join you for a far out conversation with an artist I admire uh, and I am thrilled this week to be joined by Steve Shelley and Lee Ronaldo of Sonic Youth. Though Sonic Youth ended a decade ago, the band has been uh, steadily issuing recordings from its extensive archives. And this week sees the release of a new collection, In, Out, In, on three-lobed recordings. It's a sort of comp mixtape of live instrumental jams captured on tape in the band's final decade. And Lee and Steve join me to discuss the band's always-be-recording ethos, uh, to borrow a phrase from my guy Jay Moss of The Modern Folk, as well as the way Sonic Youth navigated the mainstream, uh, and uh, and 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 they shared. I was really psyched to get into this—the sort of insane story of the 1999 theft of all of Sonic Youth's absolutely customized and modded-out equipment, and strangely how they ended up getting some of that stuff back. Um, but I'll let them share it i sure appreciate you taking the time to be with us here on aquarium drunkard if you are new to the show we drop new episodes every wednesday uh, and uh, wherever you listen to podcasts and you can always download them directly at aquarium drunkard we've got an extensive back catalog featuring conversations with all sorts of luminaries people like uh, jim jarmish alan licht we've got uh we've got Folks like Nick Lowe and Laraji and Circa Desu and there's really tons and tons to check out. So if you enjoy this conversation and you want to hear more from what we do, uh, you can check it out uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. Nothing is behind a paywall. It's all available for you. Our goal is to amplify and share the thoughts of people who we admire and whose work inspires us so that is the mission and if you want to help us continue to do what we're doing we're an independent outlet there's no parent company there's no big media conglomerate that gives us money Uh, if what you want if you want to support what we're doing just head over to our patreon where you'll get access to bonus audio bonus interviews mixtapes all of our radio free aquarium drunkard programming presented a la carte you can also check that stuff out on the dub lab archive of course uh, as well as uh, you can get access to the brand new Aquarium Drunkard Journal Philomath Volume 1, the Spring 2022 issue featuring yours truly, as well as Davindra Banhart and Tim Presley and William Tyler and others. So there's plenty to check out in our Patreon, and we appreciate your support. It means, uh, It means a lot to us, and it helps us do what we're doing thanks so much for being here i know we've got no shortage of competition for your ears on the internet uh and uh we we don't take that lightly so i hope you enjoy this conversation with me and steve shelley and lee Ronaldo. it was absolutely a thrill to talk to these guys um, sonic youth is of course a favorite so um We'll get into it and I will speak with you a little bit more on the other side. Thanks so much for being here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Get in touch if you want to talk about the show and if you want to talk about what we're doing. All right, here we go. on your shirt oh it's it's philip k dick
0: oh and he's, cool. and he's
1: got a third third eye open yeah i see that some sort of just okay. weird bootleg shirt you know it's not like the the philip k dick archival <laughs> estate is selling these or something uh
0: yeah well that's nice for talking to sonic youths well yeah he's,
1: he's totally on my it wasn't entirely intentional but it probably was subliminal you know what i mean like i'm like <laughs> writing up questions and i'm digging through the t-shirt drawer and uh yeah, it's funny. I wore this uh, the author Hari Kunzru. Do you know him at all? I know the name. Yeah. He wrote he's written a bunch of great books. Uh, one of them called Red Pill and he wrote a great book called White Tears and he he was on the podcast and I wore this shirt then and he wanted to talk about it too. So it's a it's a good luck charm, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Obviously Philip K Dick was a a big you know influence especially on on Sister. I wonder are there other uh Authors that maybe Sonic Youth collectively was interested in over the over the long run of the band, any any come to mind?
0: Um, certainly through the whole lifespan of the band, we talked tons about books that we were reading, as well as, you know, movies and and records, of course. the the ones the first ones that come to mind are are Harry Cruz mm. was uh, someone that especially Kim and Thurston were both really into. Raymond Carver was someone that I was really interested in right around the time of Daydream Nation. Um, oh my God, there's probably a whole bunch that could be uh, that could could pop up uh, pretty quickly. Um, Sylvia Plath influenced that song "Moat" from Goo. and. Um, you know, we were always constantly exchanging books and and talking about literature. Yeah, the, the Beats, of course. You know, Burroughs and Ginsberg and Kerouac.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's one of the things I've always thought is so cool about Sonic Youth is that, in addition to obviously the music you've made, the art you guys collectively made, it, it did it did seem like a like a little secret society of of pop culture, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, we weren't trying to keep it secret, um, but uh, we definitely uh, took our enthusiasms for all those different uh, things, books, records, movies, and like channeled them back into what we were doing and what we talked about to journalists. Uh, William Gibson would be another big one. Neuromancer, especially right around that same time as Sister and and Philip K. Dick, um, you know, would be would be another author that we were really, really influenced by at that point.
1: Yeah. Gibson Gibson's one of the one of the greats and when I think about his influence especially on music you know it's like it's not thought about all the time but artists as you know uh experimental as as Sonic Youth and then of course even like you know you 2 were like huge William Gibson fans you know and tried to Were they <laughs> it, it, Yeah they they absolutely were like a, around the the era of like pop and all that they were they were really interested in the sort of cyberpunk idea you know Mm. and it's it's crazy to think about it because William Gibson's one of those writers his his more recent work is also incredible you know I've
0: I've it's incredible I've followed it pretty pretty uh heavily since since those times I really love his writing so much you know he was one of the sorry to interrupt he was one of the first um you know he was obviously coming out of uh PKD and and uh and a lot of vintage science fiction which I kind of grew up on but he was one of the first that really had this vision for what a future situation might be that seemed plausible you know um, just a combination of it wasn't all shiny surfaces if you know what I mean and it uh, uh, and and certainly in terms of the idea of cyberspace, which I think he coined the term um, you know a lot a lot of he he was pretty visionary in a lot of ways,
1: yeah yeah. S- Steve, when you when were you are you also interested in in science fiction and all that stuff?
2: Yeah, um, I was thinking while you guys were talking about this that um, other bands in in the, back in the day would um, would tease us um, as being readers,
1: <laughs> like that Bill Hicks joke. Uh, exactly, we got ourselves like, a reader. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Why are you reading? <laughs> but yeah, we we tended to to pa- like Lee said, pass that stuff around in the van. So, um, so yeah, that, that's how I found out a lo- about a lot of the, the authors was from my bandmates and, uh, but sure, that's something that we all did.
1: Yeah. That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Another thing that I think is so cool about Sonic Youth, which I guess is, you know, the ostensible point of our talk is, is, uh, just how generative you all were. Listen, I've been listening to this new, this new three-lobed compilation in, out, in, and of course in the band and then outside of the band, you've all just been continually creative, continued to make new things in different combinations and all of these different sort of uh, formats and, and styles and, you know, even mediums. You, sp- you know, Especially, Steve, I'm thinking about you as like an independent label guy and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. to me, it just seems like this new compilation is such a testament to Sonic Youth's just almost seemingly nonstop generativity, you know? And I wonder if... um. It's now been, uh, what, about a decade since Sonic Youth uh, wrapped up or went on hiatus or however, you know, we can put it. But looking back now, I mean, what sense do you have of what attributed to that kind of generativity? I mean, is it something that you're able to sort of when you when you think back on it, you know, with a little hindsight, does anything come to mind in terms of what sort of was driving or continues to drive that?
0: I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is just this idea that we were, that we got into the band to begin with um, somehow as artists, if that doesn't sound too uh, highfalutin, you know, I mean, it was <laughs> never, we weren't, obviously with the music that we were making, we weren't trying to be pop stars or anything like that. And it was really never our goal. The goal was always, you know, we, we, we arrived in New York and were th- thrown into this hyper creative place where everybody was doing things and you weren't only doing things for recognition but you were doing things because this was kind of a life you chose in a sense like a creative life uh you know a a cultural discourse of discourse and creative life and and i think that's one of the things that really sustained us throughout it was never you know i mean a lot of bands if they're you know if, if you're going for some kind of a number one record kind of a thing it can you can either be disillusioned or you can like reach these highs and then kind of fall off and not know what to do next. But sure. for us, it was always just about this idea of like you know this is what you do you work you know and and uh, I have to say is through pretty much all of our career we were we were one of the hardest working bands in show business as as they say you know in terms of. You know, we re- we would rehearse five or six days a week, and and just like come as though we were, you know, punching a clock at the office, not because we, you know, because we wanted to more than anything else. And we toured, you know, in those early days, like Mad, you know, SST SST style, you know, th- thirty five gigs in thirty three days, kind of kind of you know, like yeah. like uh, Mike is still doing. I just I and I think it's kind of indicative of where we've all been at since the band stopped is that you know we we haven't stopped uh, just kind of like doing stuff whether it's uh music or or art or writing or you know whatever it is. Yeah. It's just it, it's just been a um it it's I don't know, it's it's uh it's a motivation.
1: The sonic youth lifestyle. You guys could do one of those master classes or something. Teach everybody how to yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, we had a um, we had this song on one of the late records called Radical Adults Lick Godhead Style. <laughs> and we were trying to celebrate people that we saw as continuing to be artists into their old age, like Neil Young and Yoko and just a whole bunch of different people. And we were like, well, this is really amazing. These people chose this for their life and they never stopped. It wasn't like they got to 40 or to 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever, and kind of petered out. But, you know, they chose this as their life. They didn't retire at 60, 65 years old. They, this, this is what they did, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that was really inspiring to us that it wasn't just like, we weren't just looking towards our peers and like, you know, there's always younger, younger kids coming up doing interesting stuff, but we were also just, uh, really grooving on the fact that there were these old timers that were still knocking our socks off and, you know, continuing to do really interesting stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, what's one of the reasons why I love the Sonic Youth archives so much is because I can go back and hear all of these different eras of Sonic Youth because I only got to see Sonic Youth once. Uh, and it was in it was in 2010 in Phoenix at uh, well, rather Tempe at the Marquee Theater. And, um, Mm -hmm. I wrote, I wrote it up for the local alt weekly. I I did a show review for the Phoenix new times and to get ready for this interview, I went back and I read it and, uh, it's hard not to cringe at my writing. You know, that thing you do where like, (laughs) (laughs) you get, you get like, I know that 10 years from now, I'll look at things that I wrote in 2022 and be like, this is awful, you know, or whatever. But, one of the things I wrote was, it's hard for a rock and roll band to grow up, but I can't think of a more appropriate band to serve as an example of doing it right. And uh, that's what struck me, you know, that at that show, because, I mean, Sonic Youth was always a great live band, and these archives uh, speak to that and attest to it, you know? But that, I mean, that show, it... I don't know how to put it other than it it ripped, you know, like you guys were you guys sounded so powerful. And, uh, you know, there were lots of three guitar moments and Kim was on guitar a ton, you know, and it was just so, you know, yeah, absolutely what you're talking about, you know, and it's similar because I've only seen Neil Young once as well. But I saw Neil and it was just and it was whatever in 2015 or 14 or something, and he still sounded unhinged you know in like this truly plugged in way i think that that's such a uh such a beautiful way to think about it is that you don't have to you know the burn out or fade away thing there's a third there's a third option you know (laughs) continuing (laughs) yeah keep burning well you
0: know there's two things i i would comment on that right away and the first is can you send us a copy of that article for the archives?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I sure. I can. I could. That's,
0: that's part of my function is
1: to chase down
0: all this kind of stuff. Sure, um, sure. And uh, the second one is, I, I'm kind of glad you said that because you know I always felt that in in that last period, you know, t- 2010, 2011, when we were playing the eternal music, I guess, and and maybe rather ripped, is that. You know, I, don't, I always thought to myself, like, wow, we've been together for 30 years and we're still playing at such a high level. Like, I really still felt like we're still doing these amazing concerts. Like, I didn't really know, you know, 30 years was already like a kind of a milestone that most bands don't reach. But there, there I didn't really couldn't put my finger on too many artists that had been around that long that weren't like kind of recycling old stuff or just simply playing the old stuff, you know, and um I always felt like we we were even after all that time we were still like really the shows were just like at the same high level that they'd been throughout and it it always made me feel really good that we kind of went out on a really high note we didn't like kind of peter out with a with a year or two of like kind of crappy shows where we were disinterested or anything like that that we we stayed at a really high level the whole time
1: yeah Steve in those in those final shows. Uh, what what were your impressions of them? Were you having a lot of fun in those days just in terms of playing playing this music?
2: Oh yeah. I I think I was always having fun when when the live times were going by. Sure. Um, um did did the Meat Puppets play on that night that
1: you- they, I don't think the Meat Puppets did. Okay. I, I mean, and I've seen the Meat Puppets. Uh, uh obviously, as, as an Arizona, and you know, they're like they're up there. Mm-hmm. Them Sun City Girls, JFA. You know, these are like sort of the the yeah. top tier. Yeah. Um, but I don't think they opened. I okay.
2: I was just remembering playing with them in in Arizona, sometime in that time, and and it was like a five maybe a five-piece Meat Puppets. I was just thinking about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. Elmo Kirkwood is in the band, you know? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, and they still sound great. You know, they put out... They continue to put out great records, too. Another example of a band that keeps...
0: Yeah. Keeps it. Yeah, that's what they do. They're just continuing to do it, you know?
1: Yeah, I don't think there was an opener. I want to say the Endless Boogie open, but that doesn't sound right because I'm pretty sure I saw Endless Boogie open for uh, Stephen Malcolmus just at the same venue and I'm mixing them up mm-hmm. in my head. But that thing has mm-hmm. happened where we're talking this was 12, 12 years ago or whatever. So. I'm reaching the point where it's all starting to get fuzzier than I than I like to admit. You know what I mean? Who I saw and when I saw them. You know,
0: says, uh, I, I, I just looked it up on our site, which is so detailed, and this is part of this whole archival thing. Yeah, it says Sick Out. Oh,
1: okay. Sick Alps. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah,
0: yeah. and they were definitely a, a band in the later period that we we toured with. Uh, of, you know, we we did a bunch of touring with them at one point. Uh, we were really into them at that time.
1: I'd love to hear a little bit about the, the Sonic Youth archives themselves, you know, and, and, and what, what the archives, you know, what their sort of physical character is. I mean, are we talking press clippings, CDRs, tapes, mini discs? Like what, what all does the archive encompass?
0: All of that. Tons and tons of press clippings, tons and tons of cassettes, DATs, videotapes, uh, you know, tape reels of all different uh, sizes—two-inch tape masters, uh, half-inch tape—you uh, know, all, all of that stuff—is—is um, is what you know from the very first um, from the very first gigs that we did. Even when it was just Thurston and Kim and I as a trio, we were uh, cass- cassette taping the live shows and kind of analyzing them and things like that. I remember in the very the very first couple of tours we did out out of new york were called the savage blunder tours that we undertook with with swans we went to the midwest as far as minneapolis and we did another leg where we went south as far as atlanta and i guess it was that period when people were first having walkmans and you could have those recording walkmans and and we were recording the show every night and it was this weird like, uh, here's, a, here's another uh, literary reference, but it, it really felt to us like, you know, we were all packed in this one van where there were no seats in the back. We were all just kind of sitting around in the back, Swans and Sonic Youth. And, you know, Swans would be arguing with each other and nearly fist fighting in the bands because that was their vibe. And, and, you know, we'd be doing our thing and uh, pulling a trailer with our gear and we'd play every night. And then the next day we'd spend the 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 drive in the van listening to the tape of, of the day of the night before and then play it again that night. And like it was this like we we were we always talked about it being like one of those rogue novels <laughs> where like the same things come back over and over again. And it just was this really um surreal thing. But we we've always wanted to document this stuff just you know, initially just to see how we were doing, you know. And, and when we started writing, especially when we started writing with like uh, reel-to-reel tape recorders in the early 90s, you know, it was always a matter of like, we were we were playing kind of free form and then we'd, we'd find stuff on the tape that we liked and figure out how to recreate it and kind of structure it and things like that. And right from the beginning, Thurston and I were both, you know, collecting all the posters and, and, and any ephemera that was happening and Throwing them in boxes or whatever, and I think when Steve joined, he started doing the same thing, and you know, videotapes and all that stuff. And at a certain point, you know, without even trying to, um, we we weren't thinking about it as archive at that point. It was just like the memorabilia of your own life, like like you know, keeping a scrapbook with your press clippings. It was kind of like that. You know, you you got to write up in the, in the New York Rocker. In the in the very early period, we got a couple really crucial write-ups in the New York Rocker that kind of helped us keep going. And you know, you clip that stuff out and you keep it in a in a shoebox or whatever it is. And it just kind of built from that impetus to the point where, you know, when we were 20 or 25 years in, we had all these tapes and all, you know, well, there uh, were also <laughs>
2: moments where like the first time that we found um a live Sonic youth recording at Portobello Road at you know at the cassette yeah. market. And that yeah. those moments were very key because all of a sudden we were there with some of our peers and some people sure. that we didn't realize were our peers yet. And so, so the first time you found a cassette of, you know, the band in London or the first time, you know, when these uh, bootleg CDs started popping up yeah, and someone actually spent money and made a bootleg of, of us, you know, that stuff was incredible. <laughs> so we all would buy those or steal them or whatever we had to do to get Dick to get copies of that so that became yeah. part of the archive as well
0: yeah and a lot of the archive is that kind of thing like people videotaped early shows and would send us a copy of the VhS tape we've got like hundreds and hundreds of vhs tapes and and from the very you know from the early 80s cassette tapes that are you know they may be crumbling now it's it's hard to say you know I, i've been uh transferring a couple mid- 90s cassettes at the moment and i was listening to them you know and they have that kind of like audience tape quality to them you know
1: yeah and
0: when I was when I was younger I was just thinking about this because when I was younger I was really into the Grateful Dead and I was at at one point part of this early you know early in for them fledgling period where people were trading uh tapes of them and and there was this whole network of people t- trading these tapes and like reliving these concerts you know on on tape and I was transferring these tapes of ours and realizing how many of them had, uh, like had, that. There's a circulating thing going on out there of, of our music in the same way. It's it's kind of it. It was kind of strange to to realize that there's a network of people trading Sonic Youth tapes the way that you know I once was involved with trading Grateful Dead tapes. So yeah, I have. A- mm-hmm.
1: I have to imagine that's a little that that was a little a bit of a trip when you first kind of recognized that because that's just such a cool, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, especially as Steve said, when when um, when we first started seeing like bootleg records of our stuff, it was like, wow, this is this is pretty incredible that people cared enough. Because we, you know, the other part of this is we're all collectors of that kind of stuff from other artists, right. you know, right. uh, Ed Boots, Neil Young boots, Beatles stuff, you know, what whatever it is. And so it, to be, you know, to go from the outside looking in to being to being, you know, part of that whole world of, of people doing that was. Was, was kind of a thrill, I guess, in a certain way
1: so uh were the archives as the so the archives as they stand now, did you guys at some point say, all right, let's organize let's get everything in the same place or let's move everything into a spot or or you know is that is that a thing or is it more like it's a piecemeal archive where some of you have some of it, and you know Steve has something and Lee has the other thing or, or what what's it like now
0: it's It's a little bit of both. Um you know we when we established the Murray Street studio in I don't know when we started it um 95 90, or so yeah yeah oh, that's right right when i moved here where i'm living now like 95 96 uh you know a lot of our stuff got put there and we did have this kind of back room that was uh, like a second listening room with a little uh, recording setup and we, we started, we had a room actually that we just put shelves in and we put all the master tapes on those shelves. And it was an impressive room. I mean, it was literally just like a like a glorified closet, but every surface was covered with those, you know, those big 12 inch boxes of tape. Yeah. And, and I think that was really the start of it. We put all the cassettes in there and everything like mm-hmm. that. There was a point where we got more serious about our archive and we had this uh, young man Uh, named Peter Oleksic come in. He was a a student of like library sciences and he was just getting underway. And I think Steve, you turned us on to him because he had uh, archived Fugazi's collection when they were getting ready to, you know, start releasing the tapes of every single show and all that stuff. And he finished with them and he came to us and he spent like three or four years, like creating this crazy database of everything we had and and labeling everything so you could find it and all this stuff and and at that point you know he literally spent a few years doing it and um and then after he finished with us the museum of modern art stole him away and and now he's uh, he's their video archivist at the at the at MoMA which is pretty impressive on his part but he helped us really organize a lot of that stuff and I know there was a period where you know of course we all collected stuff on our own but there was definitely a period where at least Thurston and I took all the boxes we had with like video cassettes and press clippings and brought them there and like put them in one place. And we probably still have accumulated more since then on our own. I'm sure Thurston has boxes full of stuff and and I do here and probably Steve does too. But we did make a concerted effort at one point to kind of say like, all right, let's put it all in one place. We'll see what we've got. That's doubles where we've each got the same thing, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And and get a little more serious about it. And today we still have an archive like that uh, out in our Hoboken studio, where there's uh all the masters are up on the walls. And you know, we Steve and I have been kind of like uh, shuffling it about in the last couple of weeks, kind of reorganizing it a little bit. Posters, you know, every, anything you can think of, tons and tons of posters and uh, all the other stuff, all the recorded media, CDs, obviously. You know, we people once CD CD recorders came in people would um, be sending us CDs of our shows, you know, and and like we'd have, we'd just collected all this stuff. And some of them, sometimes a little bits and pieces of that stuff would make it onto some of the records in in one way or the other, like audience recordings became part of some of the songs.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I know some of the stuff on this new compilation, you know, is recorded um, during sound check. And and, and I wonder if uh, as that sort of mobile technology became more and more available how often how often were sound checks getting recorded how often did you have somebody doing a soundboard recording was it pretty much all the time
2: i think that that would be aaron mullen
1: mm. yep
2: i think he only recorded sound checks when he felt felt that thing in the air that something was going on because sure. most of sound check is a uh, is work and it's not that interesting um, right but um this particular day I think Lee and Thurston were a little bit late, and so Kim and I were set up on stage for a while. And,
0: and we were in a uh, record store.
2: Yeah, yeah <laughs> record store. When we should have
0: been at Soundcheck,
2: <laughs> getting another archive going. But um, right. <laughs> but I, I think this uh, this piece w- was just Kim and I, um, you know, so so called uh, jamming. And Aaron knew enough. Um, he's another big equation of what we're talking about today no. but he knew enough to hit hit record and at this period of time we traveled with a, a pro tool system yeah and aaron recorded every night as long as uh, the technology was was allowing
0: yeah yeah and that was part of our our thing you know from those what i was saying before the early days we were recording on walkman and once we had our own sound person which was actually pretty much right from the beginning we always thought that was an important thing we had them recording our shows from the board and yeah. um and that that situation got more and more elaborate you know we went to stereo dats with microphones and then like you know a stereo board feed plus a stereo room feed and then uh, by the time Aaron was mixing us live we had 16 channels that we were recording so we've got uh, you know uh i would say at least the second half of our career we've got like multi track recordings of all the live shows yeah uh, pretty much
1: yeah, that's fantastic. And I'm glad... You know, it's like one of those things where it's like not every band has the foresight to do it, you know, or not every band, frankly, gives a shit enough to like, one, maybe they'll record it, you know, but then organizing it and keeping it and making sure that it has some sort of, you know, uh safe place to, to stay. You know, it feels to me like there's... That ties back into that notion of... um of sonic youth as a lifestyle sonic youth is a thing, this isn't a thing that we're you know th- any moment we have to potentially document this stuff seemed like it was you know v- at least possible that it was going to be something yeah. worth you know hanging on to and worth sharing even in yeah. the cases of these like recordings
0: i don't think we really ever even verbalized why we were doing it or why we felt it was important to do it it, it just just seemed like the thing to do like this was our work you know in the same sense uh, that uh, you know, our concerts were different every night, even if we were playing the same songs, and and that was a big part of our work. So to doc to not document it meant that it just got lost in a way. You know, I think
2: that's a big part of it, Lee. That there were yeah. certain nights, like if you know, if there wasn't tape rolling, and you would just be like, "I can't believe we didn't catch that," you know, yeah. amongst ourselves. Sure, you know? and, yeah. and so so yeah. that that made us be more serious about catching it every night because you never know what's going to happen live and i don't think
0: we were thinking about like turning it into product or anything like that we were like this is this is our our work and you know we don't document it nobody will know it existed in a way yeah i guess the first of um maybe
2: uh, using the archive a a bit um would be the uh, fan club cds that we put out Um, you know, where we put the live in Benlow from 83, and then we put out this Continental Club gig. So those were early versions of it. But of course, you could go all the way back to Sonic Death and Thurston's putting together a a cassette, a live cassette of, you know, bits and pieces from the early concerts that you guys recorded. Yeah, and
0: that was all based on those early cassette Walkman cassettes that we recorded. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Walls Have Ears, which wasn't exactly our doing, but that's you know that's built from from live tapes from from a little bit later than Sonic Death actually. Sure, that's maybe the first uh first live stuff we released on vinyl like that.
1: Yeah, that's funny. That makes it that kind of makes me think of uh, to bring Neil Young up again. But obviously the fact that that you know I don't know if it was if it was Thurston who inspired him to start recording stuff. I'm thinking of the Ark Weld release. Um, where it's like all this just on stage noise and feedback and stuff sort of uh, basically fused together, you know? So it's like, I love the idea that like the live thing can become part of the discography and the recorded discography, not just in the form of live releases, but also incorporated into what you're doing. It's all fair game, it sounds like, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, Neil's another one of those artists that has recorded himself right from the beginning. That's why we have all those amazing tapes of uh, uh, releases of, of him doing stuff. But, you know, our, our uh, we don't really know for sure, but our, our the legend of us touring with him back in 91 is always that, uh, you know, he was kind of liking some of the extended pieces we were doing, express especially Expressway to Your Skull, which was our closer every night. And he would always like do his, his pre-show calisthenics under the stage while we were doing that and always told us how great he thought that was and and we we always say that thurston said to him something like man you should just release all the noisy stuff without the songs and (laughs) that led to is it arc or weld which whichever one is the the noisy stuff um it's hard to know if it's true or not i don't know if neil ever said sonic youth you know suggested i do it like this but we Print the legend.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Print the, yeah exactly. I, I don't want to know for sure. I think it's, it's good. Let's leave it as a rock and roll myth, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you're listening to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. We'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Are you curious about the world, but also want to be surprised and even moved? Do you demand skepticism, but also want to leave space for wonder? Radiolab experiments with sound and storytelling, allowing science to fuse with culture and information to sound like, well, music. Join hosts Jada Boomrod, Lulu Miller, and me, Latif Nasser, for an experiential investigation that explores themes and ideas through a patchwork of people, sounds, and stories. You can listen to Radio Lab wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> When I started, when I started getting ready for this interview, I was almost surprised that this came back into my head. But you know, I didn't, I didn't, I I was the oldest brother in my family, so I didn't have like a hip older brother to turn me on to cool stuff, you know. So I sort of had to discover stuff. But so I didn't really hear Sonic Youth until I was like in you know high school, 15, 16, or whatever. But I remember in 1999 there was an article about you guys in Guitar World uh, magazine, which. Uh, mm-hmm although it's called guitar world and that's like a pretty fitting title for a, uh, you know, a place that would have an article about Sonic youth mostly wasn't focusing on super cool guitar music. Like you guys, it was mostly focused on, Mm. you know, whatever new metal or whatever was the thing at the time, you know, a lot of, lot of limp biscuit tablature or whatever. But, um, but I remember there was this article that was written specifically about the, the theft of your guys's guitar collection. Um, and I was kind of new to to independent music or, you know, rock music that was more out. You know, I didn't have a great frame of reference, but I was reading this article and they the whoever wrote it, you know, noted that that essentially meant you guys had to reinvent what you were doing. You had to learn how to do things that simply wouldn't, you know, you didn't have the tools, that, the specific tools that had been completely modded out, you know. Um, but I wonder... What changed for the band after that theft, aside from the obvious answer, which is all of your guitars, you know, um, how, how did how did that how did that change the way you guys went about things with some hindsight, you know, afforded?
0: Well, you know, it was interesting, actually. Uh, uh, I was I had an exchange with Thurston earlier this morning because he sent me this picture of this guitar, an old 12 uh, string guitar by this company called Kappa that uh, Eugene Chadbourne had posted. and uh, Eugene was saying something like, Oh, he heard that this was once one of Sonic Youth's guitars or something like that. And indeed, we had the exact same model and color, but it wasn't the same guitar. But, uh, you know, Thurston was asking me about it, and I was remembering about it. And uh, we had these two very specific guitars that we wrote that song Expressway on. And this was prior to the Big Theft, but we were working on with steve we were working on the teenage riot video on on broadway at this video house and we had these two guitars in our van parked outside on broadway and when we finished for the night at like three in the morning or whatever it was we came out and the the van had been broken into and these two guitars were stolen and some of our songs were so specifically written on particular instruments that Uh, You know, it was hard for us to recreate Expressway once those guitars were gone and we eventually were able to do it. But, uh, you know, it was one of those things where it was it was really hard to uh, to capture. You know, there was something specific about those instruments that made that song happen in in the way that it did. And after and then this was quite a bit earlier, but in 99, when our stuff got stolen and it was not just limited to the guitars, it was all the amps, all the drums, all the pedals. It was everything that was in the truck. At that point, we kind of, you know, the '90s were the period when we were getting. We had a crew. Things got a little more professional. We were really dialing in all of our stuff. Like we really dialed in what amps we were using and probably what drums Steve was using and, you know, our guitars. The crew was starting to really mod them to suit our needs. And and by the time everything got stolen, we really had this set of gear that was really just perfectly tuned for what we were doing and then as you say everything got pulled out from under us and you know we had to sort of scrounge and buy cheap guitars and kind of start start again and it was a little weird at first because we were in the middle of making that record New York City Ghosts and Flowers and the fact that we didn't have all the stuff that uh we you know we were trying different effects pedals we'd never used before and stuff like that and and it, it affected it but I think we ultimately found that the gear wasn't as important as the sensibility that we had you know and that we we moved on and and everything you know we sort of slowly pieced together our favorite stuff again but even right away it was like okay we we know what we're doing and and we've got a certain like outlook and viewpoint or sensibility and and that kind of carried over in a way that you know it was it was a it was a big loss at the time i mean we were devastated but um you know it didn't it didn't drive a stake into the ground and drive us to a halt, you know, drag us to a halt kind of thing.
2: Also by that period, um we had backups uh for for some items, not everything, right. but some items we had a second guitar that could play in that tuning. And and so we did we did have uh, some some things to work with as we went as we went forward. Sure.
1: Yeah. Something that I find uh kind of uh uh darkly funny is I read that that because at this point You've recovered kind of a remarkable amount of those guitars, which is no, 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 no. no. We haven't.
0: <laughs> we had about thirty guitars and basses stolen, and I think over about a decade we got back ten. Oh, no, not even ten, like seven or eight. So that's all we've got. You know, we no- never saw any drums, never saw any of the amps, but we've got seven or eight guitars back, including a couple really important ones, which is which is lucky for us. Um, but most of that stuff, we, we didn't uh, get back. You know, there's a funny story. The first couple we got back, I mean, it was stolen in Orange County, so out, out near L.A. And a couple of years later, these two stoner kids came up to us at a show. The Arthur Fest. Yeah, the Arthur Fest, right, at, at, by the Hollyhock House there, or whatever it was, Frank Lloyd Wright House in L.A. And they said, we know where your stuff is. And, and one of them was claiming that his uncle was one of the people that stole the truck. And, and you know, the truck, I think this was just a case where uh, they were stealing a truck. They didn't know what was in it. And, and a few days later, the truck was found in East L.A. empty of all the stuff. And we were like, yeah, sure, kids. And they pulled snapshot photos out of their pockets that showed our gear in some basement with, like, close-ups of, like, Somebody's sneaker on top of one of our effects pedals with the cruise riding on the side and shit like that. Like we really knew it was ours and pictures of some of the guitars. And these kids were saying like, Oh, we got thrown out of our houses. We're living in a car on, by the beach and all this stuff. And we've got a couple of the guitars and we can get them back to you. And, you know, without saying so much, it was obvious they wanted to be paid off for this. And, sure. and so we left town. And, and one of our management who were in LA met these guys like on a street corner and gave them no lee i did i did you you did yeah 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 you you had to leave the next
2: morning but i was staying uh in la with uh tom watson our 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 guitar playing friend from slovenly and overpass and i uh, didn't know that i thought yeah you you passed him on to me Uh um and so i was trading uh you know, primitive text messages with these guys all day. And finally it wound up that we were meeting on the top of a, a parking structure near where the Arthur Fest was still going on. And so Tom and I are driving up uh this parking structure and we're just looking at each other like, Are we are we finished? You know, no, like no. We, you know, it was kind of like let's make a drug deal kind of moment. Yeah. And so so we meet these kids and um they open the trunk and they had I think two or three of the, of the guitars. Two, two, yeah. And one of them was even like burned really badly. Cause they tried to get the paint off of it. Yeah. And I actually wow. <laughs> negotiated with them. Like, I'm not giving you a hundred for that one. I'm giving you 50. <laughs> Cause it's, <laughs> but they actually got a couple hundred bucks. I think Lee had, had sanctioned me to like, you know, Okay, spend up to this much on these these guitars. But um Wow. But yeah, we 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 got a couple of them back. But the an insulting thing about whenever we did get guitars back, we
0: always had to pay for them. <laughs> so well, almost always. I think oh, most of them we did pay for. Some of them we paid like top dollar for because yeah. they were amazing, you know, amazing guitars. And uh I don't I don't remember which one of Thursday it was, but I know we got a couple guitars back that were like really you know, because you know, in a way, the guitars are also part of our archive. Well, yeah, and, and yeah. At the studio these days, we've got, we've still got probably like between forty and eighty guitars, like kicking around in cases, and and that's another part of our archive that was maybe one of the first um, bits of of our archival nature that was evident to the audience. Because in the early days, before we had crew, we'd take those uh, the tops off the amps, you know, the, the, those big buckets. And turn them upside down on either side of the stage and put all my guitars in the one on this side and all thurston's on the other side and in those days we'd come out thurston and i would come out like 20 minutes before the show and like people would see us on stage and start clapping as though we were starting but we came out and like methodically stood there and like tuned every single instrument on each side of the stage and then like walked off for <laughs> five minutes before the band came on but it was you know and you know people always used to say you're, you're like a traveling guitar store but And, you know, obviously we were we had them all because they were in different tunings and different guitars were used for different things. But there was kind of this archival quality to them. And one of there's one guitar of mine that I had since before Sonic Youth started. It was a Fender Telecaster, a specific one. Is is it it the
1: Telecaster with the Strat headstock?
0: Well, yeah, yeah. It's not a Strat headstock, but the, they made the Telecaster Deluxe had that bigger headstock, and it had the F-hole.
1: Got it, and, yeah. Uh,
0: that was my first, like, that was from my previous band, The Flux, but that was, when I got that guitar, I was like, man, this guitar's got my sound, you know? And we later went on to, to buy up tons of the pickups that were in that guitar, these very special uh, humbucking pickups that Fender made in those days, and put them in all my jazz, what became my jazz blasters, And um, so that guitar meant a lot to me. And it was one of the ones that was stolen. And it was one of the few that we got back. And it wasn't the burned one, but it had been, it was natural wood originally. And somebody had painted it like sparkly blue or something like that, which it still is today. But uh, that was, of all those guitars, that was one of the ones that uh, I was really, really happy to get back. And I know there was one of Thurston's similar, like a guitar that was really important to him that we did get back. There were a couple really important ones that never came back, which I'm still sad about. Like the very first jazz blaster that my that our crew guys made for me, which was a really special one. You know, it's out it must be out there somewhere. Yeah. Also, uh sadly, after the initial meeting with these
2: these younger guys, we never were able to get, you know, keys touch. to where where any, any of the rest of the gear was. Yeah. So yeah, we, we tried, but it just didn't uh didn't happen
0: that way. Yeah. S- yeah. And not, not, you know, every time one of those things surfaces, like the few guitars we've got back, I mean, you know, what we did after that, like we, at that point, we had had a pretty good list of our gear, mostly for like insurance purposes or whatever. And we circulated it to like every music store, like people passed it on, like, like some kind of that thing. And, <laughs> and, you know, years later, people were like, Hey, I see this guitar has got the serial number off your list. And, you know, those lists are still out there tacked up in some uh, music stores you know it was a really uh this warm feeling of like people out there were, were looking for that stuff and and you know it's such specific stuff and so modded out that um as with our mixing desk that recently went missing if you if it turned up somewhere it would be really obvious that it was sonic youth stuff even if the color had changed or, you know, whatever. You know?
1: Yeah, I was I was thinking about how how specifically you had modded these guitars out. And probably in like a, a guitar purist's view, you know, destroyed or ruined said guitars, you know. Uh sure. and it's sure. when you make something truly your own like that, you know, it's impossible to mistake it. Um
0: Yeah. St- yeah, we were doing that to classic, like, you know, early fender guitars that would be worth thousands and thousands if they were untouched. I mean, maybe they're worth it for a different reason because they were ours at this point. But we were ripping out the electronics, and we we're just making them the right tools for what we we needed.
1: Steve, to go back, you mentioned that this parking garage was like near where Arthur Fest was going on. Mm-hmm. Was it near enough that you could like hear what was happening at Arthur Fest while it was going on? <laughs>
2: yeah so i'm yeah it was like a, <laughs> yeah it was like a parking garage across the street because i think part of the deal was that lee got um these kids in uh into arthur the next day for free <laughs> i think oh, that was yeah yeah <laughs> so
1: yeah i'm I'm just trying to picture this scene and it's you and you're up on this like parking garage and like comets on fire are playing or something or growing <laughs> exactly or, and uh, just like what a what a uh what a unique it sounds like a movie or something that's a that's amazing it
2: that's what the moment was like when we drove up that last ramp to the top yeah. you are like okay this is a cinematic moment
1: <laughs> that's
0: really that's yeah, Steve, I forgot that you picked him up that's so, that's so strange to me that i forgot that detail it's amazing yeah and
2: T- tom who was our la guitar playing buddy he was there with me because he would know something something about the guitars
1: yeah yeah mm-hmm. well it's, it's interesting so we we're talking a little bit about this era where um you know when when the theft happened, you had already mentioned it, Lee. But like Sonic Youth had dialed things in, and you were you know uh, a professional band with like a crew and with a you know a real sense of of what was going on. You know, I was talking with Tyler Wilcox, who wrote the um, the by or the blur for for this for the new release, and and um, yeah, we were talking back and forth, and I was picking his brain about what he was most, you know, curious about and something that came up was you know, he mentioned that one of the things he finds very interesting about Sonic Youth is is the sort of mix of like you guys being fans of music and of uh culture and 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 then also being sort of innovators and you know, he put it as almost like a mix of like reverence for what you had done. And also that kill your idols mentality of being able to destroy whatever needed to be destroyed in in the service of of building something new. So I think it just I, I'm curious about sort of your, your brush with the mainstream in the 1990s. Um, you guys were headlining Lollapalooza, you were on a major label, you you were on The Simpsons. That's actually one of my, that's something I wanted to specifically yeah. ask about was, yeah. was being on The Simpsons fun, you know, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, uh, I wonder around the time of NYC Ghosts and Flowers, it did seem like you kind of, that, that, that was a challenging album at the time. So it almost did seem like there was a little bit of a pullback from the mainstream. Did that feel in any way intentional for you guys? Or were you just following your guts? How did that work?
0: Well, you know, in the in the very first period, you know, our whole progression, like from uh, Glenn Branca's Neutral Records to Homestead to SST uh, and then to Blast First and finally to Geffen, it was always about, you know, we'd be touring our asses off and, and people would, we'd meet people in towns and they'd say, where can we get your records? It's not in the local record store. And like that would just drive us crazy because like that's what you, that's what we lived for was like going to record stores and combing through the bins and and the fact that our that we were making records and they weren't available so every time we made one of those jumps that was the main impetus for us it's like each of those new deals promised like we'll get your records in the shops you know and um and by the time we signed with geffen i mean i think that was one of the main reasons why we did you know um and in the you know it was kind of funny because it when we signed it was in that period like i think some of some bands that were our peers had already signed like rem or the replacements and you know had been maybe doing some business or whatever and record companies were looking around for stuff and uh, and geffen dgc took a chance on us mostly because at that point there were a lot of college radio people working at these places who were hip to what we were doing especially a guy in, at geffen named mark kates who was a boston uh, dj and friend of ours who, who was working at geffen at the time and kind of pushing. For them to sign us as kind of being an important band but in the first period it was like okay you know goo it's like all right cool things gonna be a hit it's gonna be an mtv hit you guys are you know and and the same thing with something off dirty and and you know we kind of took it tongue in cheek or with a grain of salt and it never really played out that way and we never really felt like we were you know we always thought our music was too weird for the mainstream
2: but what, what you're saying, Lee, is that there was always a carrot dangling for, for yeah. us. Like, hey, hey, yeah, you know, yeah. this time it's really going to happen. They did yeah. that forever.
0: <laughs> yeah. But after those first couple records where we really dedicated, like those first couple records, you know, all of a sudden our budget, like the budget for Daydream Nation was maybe, I always say it was around $30,000 and the budget for Goo was like $150,000 or something like that. And, you know, we always said like, well, what would it be like if. If we had an Aerosmith size budget to make a Sonic Youth record, like, how would it sound? And so we spent a couple records doing that. And in the end, we just realized it was too much work for too little payoff. And and also we saw this thing happening where, like, you know, these people sign you to these labels and you thought, like, oh, they're really going to be devoted to our future. And then you started to see that, like, people were switching jobs left and right in those positions. Like A&R guys were leaving, going to other labels. And two or three records in the whole staff at Geffen was practically new people, you know, and we were just like, this is, we thought it was kind of bullshit in a way. And we, and we slowly, you know, by the time of washing machine, we were reverting back to like, okay, we're going to make these records in our own studio. Again, we, you know, we played Lollapalooza and bought all the gear to, to do our own records. And we're just like, you know, we don't need to spend a hundred thousand dollars to make a great record. You know, we'll do it our way and it'll be more fun. And, and, sound better to our ears anyway you know and it was all a
2: a learning process uh we never we never worked on goo or dirty to please them that's what we were into at the time that that's what we were working on right yeah
1: yeah 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 that's fascinating that said was being on the simpsons fun i bet it was
0: yeah, it's the greatest. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's probably the biggest claim. You know, probably more people know that aspect of Sonic Youth than than anything else. Uh-huh. And you know, all we did was go into a studio, and we each had one line, I think, or two lines, <laughs> and you know, just said you said each one like three or four ways, like you know, try it a little more upbeat, try it a little more downbeat, and and that was it. But the cool thing for me about the Simpsons is that, you know, we were big fans of, of Matt Groening, yeah. and and. And the funny thing is this the theme song was written by Danny Elfman who who Kim went to high school with and was briefly in a relationship with in in high school which was a crazy coincidence and we asked if we could do the closing theme song Yeah and and they agreed and I think it I think since then other people have done it but up until that point they'd never had anybody any theme you know it was always Danny's version of the theme song at the end of the show And so they they um they not only said yes, but they booked us into Electric Lady studios in, in New York. I think that was the first time we'd ever worked at Electric Lady. Um, and so it was like this amazing thing. We were in, you know, Jimi Hendrix's studio and we were recording this crazy Simpsons theme song. And and that was always to me like something really cool about that episode that we got to record. You know, that was that was a like a, a left field thing for us to do, but really, really a fun aspect of it.
1: Yeah. That's the what the Homer Palooza episode I think is what it is. Yes
0: <laughs> it is. Yes it is.
1: That's I I think I just think about how how cool that that must must have been. And and so it really does seem like you know that last well that's that's obviously pre the sort of last decade of the band, you know. Um but but you know I just think it's so interesting the way you guys navigated that in that that weirdness of the Sort of major label feeding frenzy on anything that was you know uh had underground cred or whatever in the, in the wake of of nirvana but i mean those records did get into record stores uh to your to yeah. your point so it's you know yeah it's really crucial yeah. And actually,
0: to, to further answer your question you know so after those first few records we started migrating even though we stayed on geffen you know to their credit they kept us on the label for nearly 20 years and uh, and that was really good for us but you know we migrated back to the underground where we started and by the time we were making washing machine and the records after that it, you know the nirvana thing had kind of humped up and died down and we were finding all these young bands in little clubs that like they didn't want to be the next nirvana they were referencing you know stockhausen or you know can or weird stuff like that and and we kind of dived back and dove back into that scene and you know once we bought our own studio we were making our own records and we were also you know we we'd spent all this time learning how to make records and learning like what gear we like to work on like neve desks and 16 track two inch tape and all this stuff and so that's all the stuff we bought and then we were making our own records but
2: the well, we started, thing making, about the SY, that, started yeah, making the S.Y.R. Yeah, series, too. Yeah, that's
0: where I'm going. We, the greatest thing about having our own uh, studio was that we could tape everything we did. So, you know, the, we like, especially with a record like A Thousand Leaves, we were taping as we were writing. And so, you know, you'd get to that point where with writing a song where it would just like you do it one time and you were like, man, that was a great version of it, but it was still, you're still in development, but we were taping all that stuff. So we got to capture some of those songs like hits of sunshine or a couple of the other ones really right at the moment that they, you know, it wasn't like a month later, you're in a studio trying to get back to that moment, but we were, and that was really good for us, but we were also capturing a lot of just off the cuff jams and, and, you know, rehearsals that didn't lead to anything. And we started this SYR label and, you know, we kind of always had one foot in the mainstream and one foot in the underground from the time we signed with Geffen, but it definitely moved back towards uh, our interest in the underground after the first two or three Geffen records. By Experimental Jet Set, we were definitely moving back away from like, you know, the big corporate thing. And, you know, and in a way, Nirvana kind of distracted the record companies from a lot of stuff. I mean, it, there, were, there was a lot of I don't know. It was, it wasn't uh, a great period after the, you know, in, in their aftermath in terms of how skewed the record, you know, the record companies thought every next band they signed was going to be Nirvana. And, and, and I quite frankly, kind of fucked up a lot of bands careers, I think by, you know, giving them one record and then it didn't work and they dropped them, you know, (laughs) things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I find it just really fascinating though, that, 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 constant recording has has just been a, th- a thread throughout everything constantly you know trying disassembling reassembling going you know in all these different directions at once and I think that um, having that stuff on Bandcamp having these archives you know out in the world is just it's a really it, it is it is you know not unlike the dead or not unlike you know Fugazi doing the same thing or I do remember when mm-hmm. Pearl Jam put out like every you know there's like every See, you yep. know, every album uh, or sorry, sorry, every show got a
0: it's live gig, yeah.
1: Every live gig got a release <laughs> and a, and you know, I remember when I started working in a, a a record store and I would go over to the Pearl Jam section and it would just be uh just like a huge <laughs> stack of these thin brown uh CDs and I just remember being like, "Wow, does anybody want all this Pearl Jam?" you know, but Yeah. But now I look back and I, I don't say that as a as a hater of Pearl Jam. I like Pearl Jam, but um I recognize now the the value of that sort of thing and the value of that sort of thinking you know which is to say yeah we should document this stuff this is a band is a special thing and a group of people is a special thing and even though sonic youth has been you know uh uh, is is a is a past concern at this moment it's clear that there's still so much to explore so much to celebrate so much to listen to so much to still find new sort of um you know, just hearing the hearing stuff from this new release with O'Rourke in it, and it's like, yeah, this is this is cool. It's such an exciting thing. So I really, I'm really glad that you guys have kept as dedicated as you have to the archives and and to sharing them. And I really appreciate you guys taking time uh, out of your day to, to speak with me about it.
0: Yeah, you know, we I always thought it was weird that those bands released every single gig. And I think we we thought of it, we had more of a mindset to, to something similar to what the dead have done. We always recognized that there were some gigs that were really special, yeah. and we wanted to release those gigs. I don't think we would ever want to release every gig, because some of them were were not up to snuff, you know, even even at, if we always worked at a certain kind of level. Yeah, uh, or the um, recordings just d- don't sound that
2: great. Yeah. I think early on, we when we did start letting this stuff out, we decided... We weren't going to put everything out like Pearl Jam and Fugazi, but it yeah. would be more, you know, we would be a little bit more right. critical of the performance and the recording and the vibe. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we'd be a bit bit more selective of what, what came out.
0: Yeah, we were looking for either excellent performances or excellent sound or a kind of, you know, historic moment, whatever mm-hmm. it was. You know, first gig with Steve, first gig with O'Rourke or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Last gig in Williamsburg, last USA gig, you know, that kind of thing. Um, You know, but thinking about the archives, when we started the SYR series, which was a really important moment for us, that we realized we had the means to make not only these, you know, kind of major song form records where we'd work for a year on a record and be really meticulous about everything, but we could release these more exploratory things. The covers came from the fact that, like Thurston had in his record archive, this series of these French records that we pretty much copied the design of. You know, yeah. record sleeve for record sleeve, and that's another like uh, aspect of like drawing from our own archives to 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 enrich our you know our group's uh, you know future product in a way. And, yeah, you know, it's just another example of how the archives were meaningful to us on like a really kind of living you know <laughs> living way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, thank you so much. Before we go, uh, I want to say two things. One's a statement, one's a question. The statement is for Steve. Steve, thank you for popularizing the work or helping to popularize the work of Lee Hazelwood uh, when you did. Uh, Lee is, uh, as an Arizonan, I hold him, he's in the pantheon of our our great Arizona weirdos. um, Yes, yes. uh, For the time he spent here, at least. So thank you for that. And then Lee...
0: We, we, we ate at Keen's last night oh wow we took <laughs> that's Lee, where we, took, that's Lee, where we uh, took Lee uh when this he came famous, to town <laughs> uh, steakhouse here in midtown Manhattan like a really like place that's been there for 150 years and we took him there and he had a few scotches and just told us stories all <laughs> night long it was, it was a, an amazing evening
1: <laughs> I bet he was a lot of fun to hang around with and talk 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 to he could be, uh, yeah. And then, and then, I, I've, 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 I've read Wyndham Wallace's book, uh, "Lee, Myself, and I," and I, and, and I know that there were times where he, w- he wasn't as into the idea of uh, being gregarious, you know. So there's that. Yeah,
2: I think I, I got the short end of the stick at times uh, because I was the. You know the so-called record label. You're the suit. But, yeah. You're the suit. Yeah, <laughs> I was the suit. He uh, equated me with uh, Warner Brothers, which was uh, about as far away as you can get. But um, but, but it we was a, what he did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We
1: were big fans. We were very yeah. big fans. Uh, and then to to finish up, Lee, at uh, 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 some point in our interview, I think your your cat popped up, and uh, I could hear I yeah. could hear your cat on mic for our listeners' uh, uh benefit. What what's your cat's name? Ah, uh, that one is called teacup. Teacup?
0: Yeah, teacup. Well, I'm
1: glad that teacup could make uh, an appearance on the on the <laughs> podcast. Uh Jay Mascus's dog has made an appearance on the podcast. So, uh I, oh, really? yeah. So so teacup's in good company. All right. When
0: <laughs> when we got that cat, it was so small it could fit in it was like the runt of the litter and it could um, fit in the teacup and that's where the name came from. We didn't think it was going to survive, but it has. Yeah. Um, she has well
1: i'm I'm, yeah. I'm glad to hear that and i really appreciate your guys' time thanks so much for doing this this morning it's uh it means a lot to me it was a lot of fun
0: okay thanks a lot thanks thank you, you. It was really nice talking with you
1: Thanks so much for tuning in to Transmissions. We drop a new episode for you every Wednesday. Check out the back archives for all sorts of other fantastic conversations. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce Transmissions. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton, and our show is executive produced by Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder and the host of The Aquarium Drunkard Show, which airs every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. PST on Sirius XMU. If you dig transmissions, please do us a favor and leave us a rating or a review. Uh, click subscribe on your podcast app of choice or your RSS feed or uh, make a note to yourself to head over to Aquarium Drunkard every Wednesday and download the episode so you can listen on whatever device you want. Uh, next week on the show, I've got a great conversation to share with you with uh, Beauty Pill. We had a really good time getting into all sorts of stuff We talk a little bit about the cure that was a little unexpected but it was really a lot of fun so next wednesday uh wherever you listen to podcasts we'll get another episode of transmissions and uh, we appreciate your support and thank you for spreading the word and uh and encourage you to check out the patreon so that we can keep doing what we're doing independent outlet nobody's given us uh nobody's given us the bucks to do this except you and for that we are deeply grateful as uh as we are also for your attention as i mentioned i know that there's plenty of things to 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 pay attention to and the fact that anybody is here listening to this part of the show especially if you've made it to this part of the show if you're still listening uh a a real sincere uh expression of gratitude to you for uh for being with us uh so we'll be back next wednesday stay safe until then uh, I will do my best to do the same. Get in touch if you want to talk about what we're up to here on transmissions. I always love hearing from listeners. Uh, it means a lot to me uh, to know that people are connecting to what we're doing. So don't hesitate to get in touch if you want to do so. You can find my email over at uh, where else? Aquarium Drunkard, where you'll also find more than 15 years worth of interviews, mixtapes, features, features, yap sessions, and, uh, and lots, lots more. Hit us up on Patreon if you want to support further. Stay safe until next week. Back soon. This transmission is concluded.